listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. It is now into the new year. I hope that all of you will begin the year with Jesus in your hearts and with His grace and best wishes for the new year. I also wish you and your family blessings from God and prosperity in the new year. In the year 2017, our program will continue Sermon on the Mount and will also have the sermons by the five pastors. I hope that all of you will continue to listen to our programs throughout this year. We will return after this song. It's a new day, always a new time, and there's a new way, gonna live my life party on that. Passed and the new has come. Thank God, it's a brand new day. Looking back at yesterday, there are things that I do when the new year comes. I'm sure there are some of you that will clean the house inside and out for a clean new start to the new year. There will be some of you that decide to drive down to the beach or hike to the top of the mountain to see the first sunrise of the year. But as believers, the first thing most of us will do on New Year's Day is to pray to God. We pray to God for our needs and hopes for the new year, telling Him that we hope to live in a certain way. We also ask God for health, for our businesses to prosper, for our kids to be successful, for our families to be safe, 
for us to be employed in a good job this year, and more. There are so many things that we hope for and pray to God for in the new year. Parents will mostly pray for their children's success and health, while the youth will be praying for their future and dream careers, or even for their future husband or wife. But now let's think about all this another way. We pray to God, asking for all our needs and telling Him all our hopes. But what is God's will and hopes for us in our lives? What will be God's hopes and dreams for us in the new year? If God made requests like we did in the new year, what would they be? What would God want from all of us? As Christians, wouldn't God want us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This verse is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-3. through 3. God is telling us how to conduct ourselves as the ones that have been called to do His work. He is telling us that it is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we should live our lives as ones that have been called to the gospel of Christ. What God wants for us as we enter the year 2017 is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Be humble, show gentleness, be patient, love one another, show tolerance for one another in love, and make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. Thank you. 
Next, a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is grace and New Year's resolutions. Don't mix. Part 1, based on Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Francis. Well, Happy New Year. I love New Year's. I love starting over. I love thinking, okay, but I hope that this week... You take some time and thank God for this last year, even through the hard times that he took you through and everything else, because I, if you're anything like me, you're always thinking about the future and what's wrong and what you got to fix and how to move forward. And we don't take the time to think through the blessings of how much God's taken us through. And uh, I just had some good time these last couple of weeks just remembering 07 and thanking God for, for great things that he, he did in my life, the life of the church and some of your lives. Just basically... Whether I want to call them or not, I make New Year's resolutions. How many of you guys make New Year's resolutions? Okay. All right. Only about half of you, a third of you. Okay. How many of you already screwed up this year? Okay, good, good. All of you that made those resolutions. I know, it's nuts. I, like I, one of my resolutions, okay, this I will get in shape this year. I, you know, and I haven't worked out yet. And uh, But it's a whole idea of... You know, I, I don't know if I put it on the bulletins, but the, the title of the message was how grace and New Year's resolutions don't mix. Because so often when we make these these uh, laws for ourselves or these resolutions for ourselves, when we achieve them and we actually pull it off for the year, I mean, those of you who made resolutions in 07 and actually kept them through the whole year, by the end of the year, you feel pretty good about yourself. And there can come a pride with these resolutions. And then those of you who made resolutions this year and have already blown it, you're, you're kind of bummed out about yourself already. And, and again, it can be this focus on yourself of, I can do it. And once you do it, then you feel great about yourself. Or if you fail, you feel terrible about yourself rather than focusing on the grace of God. I mean, the truth is, the Bible does teach us that we are to discipline ourselves. And so there is a sense in which we work hard at pursuing the things that God wants us to pursue. And we should constantly be making goals for ourselves in that sense. But there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. A few weeks ago, we had a time of confession in this room where people just admitted they've been lying about things and were honest before God and just confessed it to God. And uh, then even confessed it to others, as James 5 instructs, and we prayed for each other. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, and, and thanking God for all the, the lies that were just exposed, that, that, that where you expose yourself. Because it's one thing to get caught in a sin and someone else confronts you. And it's a completely different thing when you yourself are so broken that you just confess it. Right. I mean, isn't that amazing when a, a kid actually just confesses something without getting caught? I mean, it rarely happens, but, you know, in the same. But it's, it's, it's the same with us. To just say, you know what, I can't handle this anymore. I'm dying inside. i got to just let it out. Here it is. But I want to ask you a question. From God's perspective, try to think, try to get into the mind of God with as much scripture as you know. In God's perspective, as he looks down on the earth, 
what do you think he sees as the worst sin on the earth? Go ahead and just say it out loud if you have one. Rejecting the Holy, rejecting the Holy Spirit, that's good. Yeah, because he says he, doesn't for, you know, he won't forgive that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when someone uh, clearly sees a miracle from the Holy Spirit and uh, chooses to, to still disbelieve and say it's of Satan. Okay, what else? Ignoring the needs of others. Yeah, because, you, you know, you, you got uh, the two greatest commands are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, you know, if you, John says, James says it too, but First John 3, you know, talks about how if you see your brother in need and you have no compassion for him, he goes, how can the love of Christ be in you? So that's a serious, serious offense if someone is in need and you, you don't take care of him. What else? Lying? Yeah, lying's huge. Oh, pride. <clears throat> Pride's even better. Lying is good. I mean, lying's not good. Lying is a good answer because it says Satan is the father of lies. So anything that's deceptive is of Satan. But the, the issue of pride, that's a, that's a good one. Divorce? Divorce. Divorce is huge. Because, uh, you, you know, divorce, marriage was supposed to be a picture in, in a Christian family. It was this picture of Christ's love for the church. It's this picture that we're supposed to show to the world, just like Christ says, I will never leave you. In the same way, that's the picture we're supposed to show the world of Christianity, is saying, look, I will never leave you. That, that husbands, you say to your wives, as, you, as Christ to the church, I will never leave you, I will never be unfaithful to you. That's, that's a picture. So this picture of divorce and tearing apart is so ugly in God's mind because of that. Violence, like destroying something that God created. Murdering, yeah. Unforgiveness, unforgiveness, that stinks. Because the, the whole idea in, in God's eyes is you're unforgiving because you actually see someone else's crime as worse than your own. You know, you're like judging them, like, well, I'm not going to forgive them, even though God's forgiven me of so much. That's why God says, he even says, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Forgive us our debts as we... But, but think about this. It, it, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, think about this. We're saying, God, forgive me in the same manner as I forgive others. Have you ever thought about that? So if there's any unforgiveness in your heart, you've asked God to not forgive you. That's huge. It's huge. When you, when you read uh, Luke, I think it's 18 or Matthew 18. What else? Yeah, to not share the gospel with those who are in need. I mean, again, that, that's like someone who doesn't know the good news and for us to be ashamed and not tell them that good news. In fact, he says that if you deny me on earth, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. It's that serious to him. What else? But what, what do you, you think is the worst? Idolatry. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, another bad one. Idolatry. The whole idea of setting something up as God that isn't God putting anything above him. I mean, again, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So now if you put idolatry is putting something in that place where you love something or someone more than God himself, that's breaking the greatest command. So I can see why you say, you know, that's the greatest sin. Arrogance, blasphemy, uh-huh. We're talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that, that you won't be forgiven of. Um, arrogance, someone else mentioned pride. I, I hear that a lot. How many would say... I'll show you how many would say that pride is the worst sin in God's eyes. Okay, there's no really right answer for sure. But um, my guess, in, in my understanding of Scripture, I, I believe it is self-righteousness. When I look at uh, the way Jesus dealt with people, he was harshest toward the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were self-righteous. He was, he was very loving toward the woman caught in adultery, right? But that's not the way he treated the Pharisees. I mean, not, you just see the, the words that Jesus uses and calls them sons of hell. These whitewashed tombs. He, he just, he just thrashes on these people and calls them these hypocrites because they were self-righteous, because they were proud. And the reason why I say self-righteousness too is because self-righteousness goes against God's whole plan of creation when you think about it god's whole redemptive plan see okay think about it from god's mind for a second god makes a world right here you are there's nothing there's nothing and god makes an earth and he makes all these people on there 
Okay, puts these people on this planet. And then he gives them his law or his commands. He gives them his commands, his law, so that these people would see that, wow, I am breaking his laws all of the time. The point of the law was that we would look at it and go, man, I broke that one, that one, that one. And I mean, from Adam and Eve, they just gave him one rule. They couldn't keep it. Every command, I mean, you look through history, I mean, look through this book. It's about people failing and failing and breaking this command, these commands. And then God, and this was the purpose all along, God comes in and he saves the day. He goes, okay, I gave you those laws and I gave you a sense of justice so that you all know that you ought to be punished, right? I mean, that's what the law does. We see the law so that we know, okay, yeah, I should be punished. And then God comes in and saves the day. He saves these people. He sends his son and says, look, I'm going to appease my justice. Have my own son pay for your crimes. And then those of you who believe in him, man, see, he's going to rise from the grave and he's going to ascend back into heaven. And those of you who believe in him, those of you from that planet, see, because I'm going to destroy this thing pretty soon. But those of you who believe in him, you're going to go with my son up there in heaven where we worship him forever and ever and ever. See, that was the plan. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because we go, wow, look how loving he was. We were we were messed up. We were going to be punished. And then he came and died for us. No one's ever shown us that much love. And so all of eternity we go, gosh, you're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome. I can't believe how much you love me. I can't believe how much you love me. And then we see that he rose from the grave and we praise him because he's all powerful and he has life and he's given us life and we worship him forever and ever and ever. See, that was the plan of creation God was going to create these people who would fail at his law and see his law and see it. They were sinners. Yet God would come in and save them. And then we would thank God for all of eternity, for saving us, for his grace. And that's why we worship him. See, but where self-righteousness comes in is when a person goes, God gave his law. I think I did pretty good at it. And I think I'm going to come to the end and I don't really need God's grace. I don't really need his sacrifice. I'm pretty good myself. I mean, I'm a good person. And I think that when I get into heaven, he'll let me in because of my good works. And then for all of eternity, I'll be enjoying all of the riches that I earned myself. You see, it's it's this, this ugliness that the Pharisees had of, hey, no, no, God, I'm actually keeping your law. But no, that wasn't the point of it. And I, I, when I see the way that God deals with pride, the person in the room that says, you know what, I'm pretty good because we compare ourselves to other people. When I look in Scripture, man, God really, really hates that. And, and this, this story that I give about God coming in and saving this whole group of people, for some of you, that story drives you crazy because you're never the hero in it. You know, it was never, it was never, ah, but then I started obeying the laws of God and I got myself in. There's no you in there. It was like you were made by this creator. You failed. You failed at keeping his commands and he had to save you and rescue you for all of eternity. You don't like that story because you want it to turn somewhere in there. You want it to be about you. And yet I don't know if there's a sin that God hates even more than that. I mean, from the beginning to the end of this book, it's always been about God being the center of the story and him giving you righteousness, not you earning it yourself. It's always about him being the hero. It's about the Israelites who are backed up to the Red Sea. And then who parts it? God parts the Red Sea. It's about them being in the desert going, oh, we're going to die. There's no food. And God goes, "Nope. look what I do. Provide food from heaven. It's about a bunch of people going, man, we're doomed. We have to stand before a holy God any day and we've broken all these commands. And God goes, no, watch what I do. I'm going to send my son and he'll pay for your crimes. All you got to do is believe in that. You believe in that, you're going to have eternal life. And it's all about God, all about God, all about God. And it's when we turn it as human beings and want to make it about us. And as, as we confessed a bunch of sins a few weeks ago, I wanted to make sure that we didn't overlook the sin of self-righteousness, because I, I would argue that it could be the worst. And, and it can easily creep into the church where we can start feeling good about ourselves because of how much we give 
and say, wow, we're not like other churches that spend all on themselves. Look at us. Look how much we give. We don't ever want any of that to creep in. It's very easy for us here in Simi Valley. Simi, I think this is the biggest sin that we struggle with in Simi Valley. Because what we do is we compare ourselves to other people. And we're family people. We're Simi Valley. We're not like those valley people. You know, where they're, they got gangs, they're shooting each other, there's prostitutes out there. Not in Simi Valley, we got Snookies, that's it. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, we are, we're, we're a family, we're, we're good, we don't kill each other, we got low crime rates, we got, you, you know, and, and we can start feeling like, man, I, man, I see it all the time. And, and I, I fall into it sometimes. And when we talk about other people, how often do we use that phrase, oh, he's a good guy. She's a good person. Every funeral you go to, someone will say, ah, oh, she was a good person. He was a good person. And it's very easy for us to look at ourselves and compare ourselves to other people and feel this sense of self-righteousness, which I believe God absolutely hates. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about, really. It's about, Paul explained to the Galatians, look, it's not about you doing these things. Now, we've got to get this through our heads because I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this, and yet I still hear people in our church referring to themselves as good people. And I, I was even in the parking lot today thinking and praying and thinking, God, you know, I wonder if I just took a poll and, and you know, and just asked, hey, are you a good person? How many in this room would say yes? And, and that scares me still because I think some of you would. And the whole book of Galatians is to explain, no, you're not a good person. And the whole point of the law was to explain that you're not a good person. See, we, we have the Ten Commandments. The world takes the Ten Commandments and screws them all up. They look at the Ten Commandments as if it's a good thing. As if, hey, look, I'm pretty good. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments pretty well. No, the point of the Ten Commandments was to show you, no, you are a miserable failure. See, we look at them and go, what, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't killed anyone. I, that's one of them. Okay? Good job. Okay? And even when Jesus explains murder, he explains that, no, if you have hatred in your heart, that's just as good as murder. In my eyes, you have the heart of a murderer because you have hatred toward this person. And the whole point of the Ten Commandments was not the way the world looks at them and goes, okay, here's some good rules, good standards, and I'm... Pretty good at following those, so good for me. No, the point of the Ten Commandments was, look, you've probably broken all of these. And you've got to stand before a holy God now. You're in some serious, serious trouble. And so Paul in Galatians is explaining, look, and that's the whole point why we needed Jesus. And he's explaining to these Galatians, so quit trying to come up with a system of works to where you're the hero and you feel good about yourself because you obeyed these things. It's never been about works. It's never been about the law. He explained how with Abraham, Father Abraham, the whole idea of, of, of their, their patriarch, he was even with them, it was with faith. And, uh, but some may have questioned and said, well, but then why, why do you have the commands then? Why did God make commands? And that's what he explains here in Galatians 3. We're kind of picking it up. Galatians 3 verse 15 and continuing in our series in Galatians. Paul explains in verse 15, he goes, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Okay, let me explain that. Paul's explaining this promise that God made to Abraham. And he says, you know how there's certain covenants? You know, it's similar like a will. You know when you make a will and, uh, and then you die? Or, or they don't call it a will anymore. What's it called? Trust, a living trust, and then you're not living anymore. But... uh a living trust, and then you're no longer living. Okay, once you die, that covenant can't be changed. Someone can't say, well, he really meant to leave me the house. You, you know, you, you can't, it's a covenant. It's just, it's stuck there. That's the way it is. And he, he goes, it explains, he goes, you know how there's certain human covenants where once you make the deal, you can't break the deal. He goes, it's the same way with God's promise to Abraham. If you do that humanly, imagine God, if God made a promise, a covenant, is he going to change it later? And he goes, no, he made a promise to Abraham. And verse 16, it says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
Okay, what, what he's referring to in Genesis 12, God promises Abram, a guy named Abram, he goes, look, and he later changes his name to Abraham. That, that hem in the, in the Hebrew is the plural word. And the whole idea of changing his name Abram to Abraham was his idea that he would have many, many descendants. He would have this plurality of descendants, even though his wife was, was, was very old. He says, you know what, there's going to come this lineage, there's going to come this seed or this offspring. Now, when you take this back, this is not just to Abraham. If you remember, this was from Adam and Eve. If you remember, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. They broke the command of God. And then God, later on, he promises... He says, remember that statement that he makes in Genesis? Let me just read it verbatim. Genesis 3, Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, talking about the, uh, the serpent and, and Eve, and he's talking to them because of the sin, because the serpent deceived her. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God says, look, from Eve is going to come this seed, this offspring. Okay, and then he says to Satan that, you know what, you're going to bruise the seed's heel, but he's going to crush your head. So he promises there's going to come this deliverer because of the sin that has happened there's going to come a day when this deliverer is going to come and crush the head of Satan. And then he promises to Abraham later on in Genesis 12. He goes, you know what? Leave your land. I'm going to take you to this land. And you're going to, you and your descendants are going to enjoy it. But again, when he talks about his descendants or his seed or his offspring, God is very clear in the Old Testament that he does not mean that all of the descendants of Abraham, in, in like seed, plural, like all of your descendants, is not what he's talking about. Because he explains clearly it's not from Ishmael, it's going to be from Isaac. And then once Isaac has kids, he explains it's not from Esau, it's from Jacob. And goes on down the line and explains this one seed that was going to come. Explain that, look, this goes way back. This goes, this is God's promise to Adam and Eve. It's God's promise. It continues with Abram. And then he continues and, and tells Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then he says in verse 17, he goes, what I mean is this. He goes, the law, the law which was introduced 430 years later. And that's that's after he's referring to when when God explained to Jacob the promise, reiterated the promise. Then 430 years pass. Then comes Moses and then God gives him the Ten Commandments, the law on that mountain. He goes, think about that. He goes, God made a promise way back then. The law didn't change things. See, some people thought, well, okay, that's the way it was. God made this promise to Abram. He made to Isaac, made to Adam and Eve. But then Moses came and he actually got commands and God changed the system of everything. And he says, look, if you obey these laws, then here's a new way to be delivered by obeying these laws. And God's saying, Paul's saying here, wait, this came 430 years after the last time God reiterated to Jacob. He goes, this is a covenant. You know how in, in human terms there are certain laws, certain uh, binding trusts that you make and you can't change that later? He goes, this is God. He's not going to go back on his word to Abraham. He's not going to go back to, on his word to Adam and Eve. There was always this plan of the seed who was Christ that was going to come and be the deliverer. This law that came 430 years later, that was not the purpose of it. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. It's this idea of promise. God promised Abraham there will be deliverer. God promised Adam and Eve there would be a deliverer. God promised all the prophets there would be a deliverer. And then there came Christ. This idea of the law that came in in the middle, 430 years after the promise, he goes, was not to negate the promise that God would save his people through faith, through his promise. So why, were, why was God going to deliver the world? Because he promised. It's just something he did. Now, why the law then? What's the purpose of the law? 
Why do we even need the law? If God already promised he would redeem these people, why did he make the law? Which is the very next question he asked in verse 19. And I'm going to give you three reasons why he gave the law. There must be more than this. All breath of God, come breathe within.
There are many cases of delivery delays, lost, or damaged CDs right before or after Christmas due to the increase in packages during the holidays. We predict that deliveries during that time may not go as smooth as non-holiday season. If you did not receive your CD, please contact our office right away to receive a replacement copy. The number is 602-866-8999. Thank you. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. In our last broadcast, we discussed what Jesus wanted us to know about oaths. Jesus taught us to not swear like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, making up laws about this and that to suit their own personal situations. He taught us that whenever we make an oath, we are to be sincere and our actions and our minds have to show sincerity. Also, if something is correct, just say yes, and if it's wrong, just say no. Anything else comes from the evil one. Today we will discuss what Jesus taught about revenge. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, it states, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. An eye for an eye is a phrase that many people say often. What do you think this means? When we say an eye for an eye, it usually means that we will pay back the person for whatever harmful situation we had to go through. Not to mention, we usually say this to really mean that we will pay them back double for whatever was done to us. During the age of the Old Testament, some people would say an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. However, in the New Testament, Jesus, who is full of love, said not to look for retribution. Originally, those words were not given to talk about retribution in that way. In Exodus 21, it states, Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. But this is only when somebody harms you physically and you needed to receive compensation. Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19 also state that the judges in Israel used these methods as punishment. The goal of these laws in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 20, was that through these punishments, people would fear doing wrong to avoid this punishment. Also, this is what the judges used to punish those who broke the laws. It didn't give permission for someone to go out and take personal revenge. Leviticus chapter 19 says not to take revenge. People have a tendency to want to punish those who did them wrong and usually in a bigger way than they were harmed. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet a person by the name of Lamech. He stated to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Then Lamech's is 77-fold. He is boasting, saying that he wronged someone as revenge even more than he was wronged. The law states an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, the Sadducees and the Pharisees used it to benefit themselves and their own personal situations. Therefore, Jesus told them not to look for retribution and do not resist the one who is evil. This doesn't mean to not fight evil, but to not take revenge on those who wronged us. What he says afterwards are four things that we must do in order to not take revenge. The first thing he says in regards to this is, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Culturally at this time, being slapped was seen as a very offensive personal attack. What Jesus meant by turning the other cheek 
was that no matter what, do not take revenge for personal slander. The second thing he said was if anyone were to sue you and to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Exodus 22 says if someone takes someone's clothes to give it back before nightfall. This is because the outer garments are an important piece of clothing. Jesus is saying, even if there is only one piece of undergarment left, go ahead and give the outer layer to them. Jesus also says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. At this time, Israel was under Roman rule and a Roman soldier could grab anyone and force them to carry their baggage. Jesus is saying that even if you have to face something like that, just do it for them and walk with them. In this world, when we are faced with offenses such as these, we are expected to pay them back for what they did to us. However, Jesus wants us to turn the other cheek, give our cloaks as well, and walk 10 miles if someone forces us to walk 5. So why do we need to do this? Romans chapter 12 tells us the very reason. Verses 17 through 21 states, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So far, we talked about the three things that Jesus asked us regarding revenge. Everything he said was do not take revenge. The reason for this is because vengeance is not in our authority, but it is God's, and He will repay all the wrongs done to us. When we acknowledge that only God has the authority to take revenge, when we obey and turn the other cheek, give our outer garments, and walk ten more miles, who do you think will be embarrassed? It is those who attacked us. When our actions are good, their action will be seen as wrong and evil. In verse 20, the Bible states, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, what does this mean by heaping burning coals on their heads? Many scholars think that this refers to the practice of putting ashes on their head to show repentance. This would mean that they would know what they did wrong and repent of their actions. Also, in the Old Testament, ashes symbolized God's punishment. So to have ashes on their heads would mean God punished those who did not repent of their evil ways. The person who has wronged us might or might not repent for their actions. However, the one who judges them is not us, but God. We should not be the one who is judging. The fourth thing that Jesus says is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If the first three things that Jesus said to us is about those who oppress us, then the fourth one is about someone who asks something of us. He tells us what our actions should be. It is to fulfill their need. Those who have inherited the kingdom of God are those who do not think of themselves and who obey Jesus. Let us be the ones who obey Jesus in this world. Today we discussed what Jesus wanted us to know about revenge. In our next broadcast, we will go even further to study what he meant when he said to not take revenge, but to love your enemy. I thank you for listening. And please join us next time as we continue our series with the Sermon on the Mount.
One for their little child. If the child is weak and sick, then the parent will want their child to be strong and healthy. If the child is lacking patience, then the parent will want the child to grow in patience. If the child is abrupt in the way they speak, not caring about who they hurt, then the parent will want their child to think about others' feelings. And fix the problem of speaking everything that comes to their mind. If the child is not doing well in school and their grades are slipping, then the parent will want their child to study harder to improve their grades. What will God be like? God wants us to live our lives that are appropriate for each one of us. He wants us to live our lives in the new year, reading, learning. And living according to His words, God wants us to live our lives worthy of our calling, for we have been called by Him. He will want the ones that are not humble to become humble. He will want the ones that are cruel and vicious to be gentle. He will want the ones that are impatient to be patient. He will want the ones that do not know how to love, to love one another. What are God's plans and hopes for you this new year? I hope that we think about what God's will and hopes are for us this new year before we come to Him with all our requests for the new year. I hope that all of you will figure out what God's will is for you this year as you meditate and pray on His words. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope that we all spend the next year living our lives according to God's will. I hope to see all of you again next week, and God bless. In the shadow of the cross, where my first love died. In the valley where we learned how to climb so high. Will you open my heart? Blood on your hands is yours, not mine.